Since September, we've been looking at the life of Jeremiah, who for 40 years told the people of Judah that unless they shaped up, that he planned to punish them. He gave them untold chances, but they ignored him and continued to disobey. So God eventually allowed the Babylonians, the world's great superpower at the time, to invade them. And after a siege that lasted for two and a half years, the Babylonians broke into the city. Now, King Zedekiah and some of his uh, officials escaped during the night, slipped past them as the city was being sacked. Um, But the Babylonians ran them down. They slaughtered his sons and all of his royal officials. They gouged out his eyes, put him in chains, and took him to Babylon, along with many of the others that they carried off, most of the most important people in the land. But not everyone went. King Nebuchadnezzar allowed the poorest of the poor to remain behind to take care of the vineyards and the fields. And as he was mopping things up, he told his commanding officer to find Jeremiah. And he said, paraphrasing, look after him, see that he isn't hurt. And then he added, give him anything that he wants. The commanding officer found Jeremiah in chains. He was slated to be taken off with many of the others who were going to in exile to Babylon. But he freed him and he gave him a choice. He said, you can come to Babylon where we will take good care of you, very good care of you, or you can stay. It's up to you, Babylon or Judah. So Jeremiah chose to stay in Judah. The commander gave him some food and money and let him go. Now, by the way, it would have been far easier for Jeremiah if he had gone to Babylon. Um, He would have been well-treated. He would have lived at least in some level of comfort But he decided to remain behind with those who stayed in the land, to stay behind with the poorest of the poor as they lived in that defeated nation. Nebuchadnezzar left a man named Gedidiah as the governor in charge. Uh, Jeremiah and Gedidiah were on the same page. Gedidiah told the people that uh, the Babylonians meant not to harm them. He told the people to remain in the land, to serve the king, and all will go well with you. He said, settle down, take care of the land, And I'll represent you with the Babylonians. And at first, it did go well. In fact, after the siege, many of the people who had gone to surrounding areas came back. They began to work the land, and they harvested a bumper crop. But there were some bad elements around as well, including a man named Ishmael, who'd been recruited by some of the neighboring kings to assassinate Gedidiah. And even though told about the threat, Gedidiah didn't believe that his life was in danger. But he was wrong. And early in chapter 41, Ishmael murdered Gedidiah, and went on a crime spree, killing anybody he could find who was loyal to the governor. By the way, after the Babylonian victory and exile, Jeremiah was ready for a fresh start, and he really hoped that the calamity they just experienced would purify the nation and turn them toward God. So he had this vision of working with Gedidiah on reorganizing those who had remained in the land into a restored Israel. He reasoned that 70 years later, those who had left would come back. They'd find that there was already a a head start on establishing a a righteous nation. So Gedidiah's death was a huge blow to him. But it wasn't the worst thing that happened. That setback made all the people who remained in the land afraid of what the Babylonians would do once they found out that someone had assassinated the governor. So they made plans, and the plans were to leave for Egypt. They thought, maybe we will be free there. Then surprisingly, at least given their history, they did the right thing with their fears, and they came to Jeremiah early in chapter 42. If you want to read along, I'm going to read quite a bit from chapter 42. It's on page 1213 in the Pew Bible, page 1213, although I'm also going to put the words on the screen. It begins this way, And the people say to Jeremiah, Please pray to the Lord for your God for this entire remnant. 
For as you now see, though we were once many, now only a few are left. Pray to the Lord your God. Pray that the Lord your God will tell us where we should go and what we should do. I have heard you, replied the prophet Jeremiah. I will certainly pray to the Lord your God as you have requested. I will tell you everything the Lord says and will keep nothing back from you. Then they said to Jeremiah, May the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act in accordance with everything the Lord your God sends you to tell us. Whether it is favorable or unfavorable, we will obey the Lord your God, our God, whom we are sending you, so that it will go well with us, for we will obey the Lord our God. Ten days later, God gave his reply through Jeremiah. This is in verses 9 to 12. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your petition, says. If you stay in the land, I will build you up and not tear you down. I will plant you and not uproot you. For I have relented concerning the disaster I've afflicted upon you. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you now fear. Do not be afraid of him, declares the Lord. For I am with you and will save you and deliver you from his hands. I will show you compassion so that he will have compassion on you and restore you to the land. And then he gave them a warning, verses 13 to 16. However, if you say, we will not stay in this land, and so disobey the Lord our God, and if you say, no, we will go and live in Egypt, where we will not see war or hear trumpet or be hungry for bread, then hear the word of the Lord to you, the remnant of Judah. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. If you are determined to go to Egypt and, do, do, and you do go and settle there, then the sword you fear will overtake you there, and the famine you dread will follow you into Egypt, and there you will die. And then he scolded them, and I'm going to paraphrase a few verses at the end of chapter 42. He said, you weren't honest when you asked me to pray for you, when you said you'd do whatever God told you to do, because today I've given you God's answer, and you're no more willing to obey him now than you were in the past. So mark my words, you're going to die of violence, famine, and disease in Egypt. Now, the people weren't any happier now with Jeremiah than they'd been in the past and uh, before the Babylonian invasion. And so they essentially say at the beginning of chapter 43, Jeremiah, you're lying. The Lord our God has not sent you to say you must now go to Egypt to settle there. So a man named Joannan and all the army officers and all the people disobeyed the Lord's command to stay in the land of Judah and led away all the remnant of Judah who'd come back to live in the land of Judah from all the nations where they'd been scattered. And they took the prophet Jeremiah and Baruch, who was one of his uh, co-workers, along with them. So they entered Egypt in disobedience to the Lord. When they arrived in Egypt, we're told that Jeremiah gathered all the people and he did something symbolic. They, they gathered right in front of, the, of Pharaoh's palace. Jeremiah took some large rocks, they lifted some paving stones, and he buried the rocks right below the paving stones. And then he told them what God had told him to say. He said that King Nebuchadnezzar would soon come all the way to Egypt. He'd set up his throne on that exact spot where Jeremiah buried these large rocks. Then he'd destroy the land, the temples of Egypt, and he'd put all the Jews to death. That was Jeremiah's prediction. And then God had one final message for the Jews who were now living in Egypt. This is in early in chapter 44. He says, you know, you saw what I did to you in Jerusalem and to the rest of Judah. And you know there's nothing left there but ruin. So why is that? It's because you provoked me to anger with all your wickedness. 
your idolatry, your pursuit of other gods. I sent prophets like Jeremiah to warn you, but you wouldn't listen or turn from your wicked ways. And so my anger burned against you, and now that area lies in ruins. Continuing in chapter 44, and again, I'm paraphrasing here just because of the length of the text. He says, why? If you knew all of this, are you still bent on a self-destructive path? Haven't you learned anything? You just continue to bring shame on yourselves. You don't show remorse for what you've done or any reverence for God. None of you have chosen to follow me or obey my commands that I gave you and your ancestors before you. You thought by going to Egypt you would avoid destruction, but you're wrong. You're going to die right here in Egypt. Only a few of you will ever go back to the land. They responded at that point, not with repentance, but with defiance. In chapter 44, verses 16 and 17, again, I'm going to paraphrase. It says, we're not going to listen to you. We're going to do just what we want, just as we've always done. Jeremiah could not believe his ears. After all that had happened, after the Babylonians had humiliated them, almost annihilating an entire nation, they continued to defy him. Keep doing what you're doing, Jeremiah said, and you'll see. You will be flattened when King Nebuchadnezzar comes and destroys Egypt just as he did Judah. And then at the very end of chapter 48, in verse 28, we get the last words that we find, at least in the book of Jeremiah, that Jeremiah Jeremiah says. This is what he writes, or what he says in, in verse 28. Those who escape the sword and return to the land of Judah from Egypt will be very few. Then the whole remnant of Judah who came to live in Egypt will know whose word stands, mine or theirs. And with that, Jeremiah completely disappears from the scene. We never hear from him again. We don't even know how he died. You know, often when a great historical figure reaches the end of their life, uh, they write a memoir. They make an attempt to put everything in perspective, both their successes and their failures. From what we know of Jeremiah, we have every reason to believe that he died believing that he had failed. Jeremiah most likely believed he'd failed. For 40 years, he told the people what God wanted him to say, but they refused to listen. Then the worst possible thing happened. Everything he predicted came true, and the Babylonians came and crushed the people, deporting many of them from the land. The most unsettling to many of them was that their beloved temple, the central symbol of their nation, the sign that God was in their midst, was gone. Jeremiah saw this coming a long way off. He knew it had been preventable if only they had listened. And even though Jeremiah was right, he didn't gloat. There was no I told you so in anything that he wrote. And yet even as it disappeared, even as he disappeared, perhaps with feelings of great personal failure, it's not an exaggeration to say that Jeremiah saved the nation. Let me just explain what I mean by that. Up until then, the people of Israel believed that they had had an irrevocable promise from God that guaranteed their nation's eternal well-being. And they had had many experiences where others around them threatened their stability, threatened their existence as a nation, and each time God had delivered them. But this time, in fact, it was inconceivable to them that anyone would ever completely defeat them. So when this happened, it was more than just a political catastrophe. It was a spiritual crisis. They wondered how... God could have let them down. In the ancient world, and this influenced Jews as well as others, but it was particularly common among pagan nations, the idea was that religion was defined by place. So if your nation went to war and you lost, it was not just your military force that lost, it was your God who had lost as well. In some cases, an entire nation would change gods based on whether they won or lost a battle. 
the Jews had been taught that their God was different, that he was the one true God, the one who was the same yesterday, today, and forever, the one who is everywhere at the same time. And that meant that they should be able to trust him. Let me just give you one example from the words of Jeremiah in chapter 17. He wrote, Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when the heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. But this crushing defeat that they'd experienced made them doubt that God was who he had told them that he was. And so they wondered, had he failed them? They needed an explanation for this tragedy. The whole idea was that God had, and they believed, would continue to protect them from anything. And yet, in this particular case, they experienced tragedy. Well, as it turns out, in an ironic sort of way, Jeremiah's message of judgment gave them hope. Let me explain. Because he told them, if you continue to persist in sin, you'll be judged, and then they were judged, they began to go back and reassess and understand that it was their behavior that led to their demise, not God's. Jeremiah saw this coming disaster in high definition, but he also saw beyond it to the redeeming, restoring grace of God. So they began to reinterpret history and understand more clearly that God had good plans for them, but they had a responsibility. And they began to accept that responsibility for what had happened. They thought in those 70 years that they lived in Babylon, they thought long and hard about what Jeremiah had said. They searched their hearts, they repented, they renewed their commitment to be the people of God. Something that Jeremiah had asked them to do back in chapter 9. He said, let not the wise boast of their wisdom, nor the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, righteousness on the earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Putting all this together helped them understand that God could be found as easily in Babylon as he could be in Jerusalem. Jeremiah's words pointed them well beyond the despair of the moment to the hope that was to come in the future, that one day they would return. And as we'll explore next week, he also pointed their attention to what he called the Lord, the righteous Savior, the one who would bring the new covenant that God had promised. Long after Jeremiah was gone, the people of Israel reflected on his words. They found hope for the future. And by the time they returned to the land 70 years later, they were a completely different nation and they had reassessed Jeremiah's legacy. From that point on, he was as important to them as Abraham and Moses and David. He was a hero. Remembered so finally that years later when Jesus arrived on the scene and began to do remarkable things, one of the questions they had was, is this Jeremiah raised from the dead? That's why it's not an exaggeration to say that Jeremiah saved this nation. What Jeremiah told them to do work, worked. And last week we talked about how he asked them to settle down, build houses, plant gardens, have families. Well, they did exactly that. They also built a synagogue. They studied the Torah. In fact, during the time that they were in Babylon, they edited and compiled much of what we have in the Old Testament. And then they learned to worship God without the trappings of the temple. And that saved them. Seventy years later, they returned with their identity intact. They'd been a humbled and chastened nation. They'd been saved by Jeremiah's message of hope that one day he would rebuild what had been torn down. Chapter 24, verse 7, God said that he would do something. He said, I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord. They will be my people, and I will be their God. 
for they will return to me with all their heart. In his book, The Road to Character, David Brooks makes a comparison between what he calls resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Resume virtues are the kind of things that you put on a resume, the things you bring to the marketplace, the skills that make you valuable in a workplace setting. Eulogy virtues are very different. They're the kinds of things that people talk about at your funeral, whether you were kind and brave and honest or faithful. And we live in a resume world, a world that values more for what you can do than who you are, a world that cares more about what you've accomplished than the character qualities that define the core of who you really are. Jeremiah, by all human standards, had a dismal resume. As far as he knew, after 40 years, he hadn't accomplished anything. And yet his life was defined by something much deeper and more important. I hope and I believe that he had a deep sense of knowing that he'd done exactly what God had asked of him. Jeremiah was the most clear-eyed person in his generation. Who he was flowed directly out of his relationship with God. We talk regularly here at City Church about a personal relationship with God, what it is to know him through Jesus Christ. It's the idea that your faith can't be your family's faith. You can't inherit it. It's also not something that is cultural. It has to be personal. And Jeremiah knew God intimately. And we can see that. By the way, this idea of a personal faith is why St. Paul, for example, told a group gathered in Athens, he said, he, that is God, is not far from any one of us. A relationship with God starts by trusting Jesus Christ, and it grows then out of spending time with God, obeying what he asks of each one of us. And Jeremiah demonstrated that throughout his entire lifetime. Now, this whole idea of assessing our lives happens differently in everyone's life. Last night, Kathy and I went to a retirement celebration for Mark Hamron here from City Church. I don't know if he's in this service or not. Sometimes he's in the first, sometimes he's in the second. Um, but he may be sleeping off the uh, celebration that he had last night. Um, Mark was, the uh, for over 40 years, the high school swimming coach at Richfield High School, not far from here. Um, he coached the 1980 state champs. Um, he was coach of the year. He's in the Hall of Fame, Swimming Hall of Fame, numerous all-state swimmers. But what we heard last night was students and parents and administrators talk not just about the swimming. In fact, they didn't talk much at all about the swimming, but talked about the personal and spiritual impact that Mark had had on them. And it was a great night, the kind of night that everyone should have toward the end of whatever career or a lifetime of faithfulness. But not everyone gets a night like that. Jeremiah certainly didn't. Day after day, he faithfully did exactly what God asked of him. He had no idea of the impact that his life had on anyone. And often, neither do we. Sometimes, like Mark, we get a glimpse of how God's used us. But more often, we slog along like Jeremiah, doing what we can, unaware of how God may have used us in the life of someone that we've known along the way. In 1912, a doctor named William Leslie went to live as a medical missionary among a tribal people in a remote area of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Seventeen years later, he returned to the United States, a discouraged man, believing that he had failed to have an impact for Jesus Christ. And he died nine years later. In 2010, a team traveling in the area made a sensational discovery. They found a network of churches hidden in the dense jungle across the river from where Dr. Leslie had lived almost 100 years ago. You can see an area where Dr. Leslie lived on the screen. The local people told the visitors their stories that their ancestors had told them. 
that when Dr. Leslie came, he taught them the Bible. He taught their children to read and write and told them the stories of the Bible. Now, Dr. Leslie's goal while he was there was to share Jesus with these people. And even though he left after 17 years, thinking his time had never amounted to much, as it turned out, he was wrong. His legacy he left behind was huge. Now, that's a dramatic story that few of us can relate to. But I'll bet that you may have a story or two of your own, a time in your life when maybe you did something you didn't even realize, and yet later someone came back to you to tell you about the influence or the kindness that you had done that was meaningful um, nonetheless. My father's 88 years old. He'll turn 89 early this next year. And for many years he taught school, first elementary school, then middle school. Uh, and being, he was a great teacher, by the way, but it wasn't always easy. His very first class was a class of fifth graders, and in that first class, he had a boy named Ernie who couldn't read. He was in the fifth grade, but he couldn't read. My father remembers that Ernie seemed bright enough, but somehow the penny hadn't dropped. It hadn't clicked for him, and so he taught, tried all year to teach Ernie to read, but at the end of the year, he still really couldn't. So as the year drew to a close, my dad asked him, what do you think, Ernie, if I would keep you for another year in the fifth grade and we would work on your reading? And Ernie said, Mr. Somerville, that would kill me. But my dad talked to the principal, he talked to Ernie's parents, and they all agreed that it would be best for him to try at least one more year in the fifth grade. So my dad taught Ernie another year. And this year they had better success. They came up with a strategy. While the other students would work on assignments, my dad and Ernie would go to the back table in the, in the back of the room. And he started out by asking Ernie to tell him stories. My dad would write them down, type them up, and then he would have Ernie read the stories back to him. And it seemed to help to have him reading stories that he himself had composed. And at the end of the year, Ernie had learned to read a little bit, passed on to the sixth grade, and my dad completely forgot about Ernie. Many years later, my dad was at the doctor's office. A nurse called his name just to make certain he was there. And when he re returned to his seat in the waiting area, a couple came up that he didn't recognize. Mr. Somerville, they said, we are Ernie Bailey's parents, and we want you to know that Ernie still remembers you. To him, you are a great man. When our family gets together, he still talks about you. And then they told my dad that Ernie had a good job, that he had wife and children, that they were buying a home. All this from someone my dad had almost completely forgotten. A few weeks ago, I had my own Ernie Bailey moment, not nearly as dramatic as my father's. For the most part, my assignments when I worked at General Mills were positive, but I had a two-year stretch where things were very difficult. Um, it's a two years I would just as soon forget, frankly. The brand I was working on when I came in wasn't doing well, and it got worse uh, right when I took things over. Um, but that wasn't the most difficult challenge. To put it delicately, there were several difficult personalities above and around me, that uh, made things very difficult. And as I look back on my career in business and leadership in the church, it's the time that I felt the least effective as a leader. And one of the people who worked with me at the time was a bright young MBA that I thought, at least at the time, did not respect me as a leader. We worked together for nearly a year, and even though this happened over 20 years ago, I always felt somehow that I had let her down. A few weeks ago, I was at a caribou not far from here, when I heard someone say my name, and it was her. We've not seen each other in a very long time. She greeted me warmly, and for about 15 minutes, we reminisced about our time working together. And by the way, about our accomplishments, because we did turn the brand around. But then she shocked me, and she told me that her memory of that year 
is that I was the only nice person in the business unit. Now, let me just say, she didn't say I was a great leader, but she did say I was nice. And what she said, in some small way, redeemed for me what was a very difficult set of circumstances. We have a very limited ability to control our successes and failures, but we can be faithful in what God has given us to do. And the important thing is to do what we can do and leave the rest in God's hands. If we've been faithful to God, let me just say, if you've been faithful to God, know that God has used you, maybe in ways that you can't even imagine or ways that will only be revealed in eternity. It may be your example, an example that you set for others, your love for someone who's been overlooked or the way you stood up for someone being mistreated. As I've spent time getting to know our new friend Jeremiah, I've wondered how he looked back on his life as he grew old in Egypt. Did he have a sense of satisfaction? Did he take comfort from knowing that he had faithfully carried out the mission God had for him? Did he find peace in the fact that he had been courageous even as the people ignored or even despised him? What we know is that Jeremiah paid a high price for his faithfulness, but he never gave up. He was faithful all the way to the end. And may we too be faithful in whatever it is that God has given us to do, no matter how big or small it might be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, uh, for Jeremiah's faithfulness all the way to the end. Father, we don't always understand your ways, but we can uh, learn from Jeremiah, from his deep personal relationship with you and from his example of faithfulness. And may we follow this example even if we never see the results of, our, of what we do, may we trust you with our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name.